We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Your Bible is open, please, to Matthew 22, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 22. I begin with verse number 34, and I want to speak to you on the answer of our Lord to the Pharisees when they said, said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now in Matthew 22, we have several very interesting things that transpire. Uh, in, the, uh, in the first part of the chapter, we have the parable of the marriage feast and the man who came into the wedding feast without a garment. And uh, the, the, uh, the uh, king said, friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king commanded the man to be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus answers the Herodians. The Herodians are a religious sect of that ancient day. And uh, then the Pharisees took counsel how they might uh, entangle the Lord in his conversation. And the Herodians came and said, now we want to ask you a question. Uh, are we to pay tribute to Caesar? Uh, is it lawful to give tax money to Caesar in verse number 17? Is it lawful? What thinkest thou, said the Herodians to the Savior? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or is it not? And Jesus in great wisdom took a coin and taught a tremendous lesson that oftentimes we refer to in the path and the sojourn of our life upon this earth. He said, uh, whose inscription is this upon the coin? And they answered Caesar's inscription. And then Jesus said in verse 21, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. There's never been a greater statement made than that. Never been a more true, a more just, a more equal statement made than that. We have certain obligations to Caesar. We also have certain obligations to God. You and I have certain obligations to our country. We have certain obligations to God also. I don't put any stock in people that discount our country. I, I, can't, I, I can't muster up any sympathy in my heart for draft dodgers. I can't get any sympathy in my heart for a man that won't pay his taxes, a man that will evade his income tax and lie about his income tax or fail to make a return on his income tax. I just don't have any sympathy for people like that. Uh, Jesus, it seems to me, is clearly teaching that we have an obligation to our country. Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things of the Caesars. And I think we ought to learn a lesson at that point and, uh, and, and, and give to the, uh, to the government that which the law requires. Now, I'm not arguing about the amount. I recognize that the tax load and burden that me and you carry is an exceeding heavy burden. And I would that it could be much lighter and much smaller. But the fact remains the law must be recognized and obeyed whether we agree with it or not, you see. And the law says that a certain amount of taxes are to be paid. If you don't do that, you're, you're a lawbreaker. And if you're a lawbreaker, then you couldn't be right with God. You say, well, I just don't agree. That doesn't excuse. You have an obligation to your country. Give to Caesar the Caesar the things of the Caesars, but at the time and at the same time, render to God the things that belong to God. 
Now, God has an, uh, uh, we have an obligation to God as well. We have a duty toward the Almighty as well. And the wisdom of the Lord is great in verse number 21. And when they heard these sayings, they marveled and left him and went their way, the Herodians. Then in the next paragraph, Jesus answers the Sadducees. And they were famous in that they did not believe in any resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of our Lord to begin with, nor did they believe in the resurrection of any other person. And they came to the Lord and said, Master, if a man die having no children, and uh, the, uh, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up children, until this woman had married seven brothers, and all seven of the brothers finally died, and uh, in the resurrection, when all seven brothers come out of the grave, and the woman comes out of the grave, they said, whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? Now imagine the Sadducees said, I really got him fixed now. There's no way in the world for man to uh, give an intelligent answer to that kind of a question. And if I've ever found a question that would tax your imagination, this one would certainly do it. Uh, one boy died, the next brother married his, uh, uh, his sister-in-law. And he died, and the next brother married the same lady. Until that had happened seven times. Now the Sadducees said, you teach there's going to be a resurrection. These seven boys will come out of the grave, and the woman will come out of, gra out of the grave. Whose wife shall she be in the resurrection? Now Jesus was fixed for the Sadducees, and he answered in verse 29 and said unto them, Ye do err in two ways. First of all, you err not knowing the scriptures. And second, you err not knowing the power of God. Now, how true that is and how, how wonderful that answer our Lord gave to these Sadducees. And uh, to begin with, the Sadducees were not believers. And they were not fooling the Lord. The Lord knew what they were and who they were. And he knew that they denied the resurrection. And so without any hesitancy, he said, you err in that you don't know the scriptures. And they didn't. They were ignorant of the basic elementary facts of the Holy Scriptures. But you not only err in, the, in that you don't know the Bible, but you err also in that you've never come to recognize the power of God. Uh, there's no dilemmas with the Almighty. Now, the, the imaginary situation thought up by the Sadducees and advanced by the Sadducees to our Lord uh, is, a, is a complex thing. And I doubt if any human being would ever be able to give a full answer to such a complex situation as imagined in this paragraph. And yet Jesus said, with God, nothing is impossible. You don't recognize the power of God. And we have people in the world today, just like the Sadducees, who err in that they're scripturally ignorant, and second, in that they know not the power of God. Then Jesus went on to say, in the resurrection... They shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but in the resurrection we are as angels of God in heaven. Now after the resurrection, the last marriage has been performed. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we in, in glorified bodies, incorruptible bodies, having come out of the grave, will not be interested in marrying anybody. Marriage is an earthly institution. Marriage is honorable and ordained of God for this pilgrimage only. And when this pilgrimage is over and I have a body celestial, I shall not be occupied with that. Neither shall you be occupied with that. 
no more than the angels in heaven are concerned with that kind of thing now. In heaven, you've got one economy. In the earth, you have another economy. And Jesus said in the resurrection, they're neither marrying nor given in marriage. In the resurrection, you have other things to occupy you. In a glorified body, you're not concerned about whose wife uh, she shall be, but you shall be as the angels in heaven are. Now verse 31, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, said Jesus to the Sadducees, uh, that which was spoken of God unto you, where God said, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that's a question. Have you not heard that? You Sadducees, don't you know that? That I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is not the God of the dead. But God is God of the living, is what Jesus is saying. In other words, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Uh, in a true sense of the word, that's literally so. That God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. In Jesus, you never die. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astounded and astonished at the doctrine of the Savior. Now you've got the uh, Herodians, you've got the Sadducees testing the Lord and tempting the Lord. Now the Pharisees moves on the scene in verse number 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. Note, tempting him. This man called a lawyer in verse number 35, a scribe, a leader in the community of Israel. He was not really interested in the question they're about to ask at all. Verse 35 lets us know clearly that the only motive behind the question that I'm going to deal with today was to set a trap uh, and to tempt the Savior. They were trying to lead the Lord out to say something that they could indict him with. You know, sometimes a man's word can be a terrible thing used against him. We've been reading a great deal about that uh, in the newspapers recently happened in the last few days. We've heard a great deal about that. What a man says on record can be used against him. And these Pharisees are doing their best to draw the Lord out for a hasty, hasty answer, for some quick reply, for some mistaken reply. How foolish they were to believe that the Savior could ever make a mistake. How foolish they are to believe that the Savior would ever be at loss as to what answer to give. You see, nothing ever occurs to the Lord. He knows all things, the past, the present, and future at one time. And he's never taken by surprise. He doesn't have to scratch his head and reach for an answer. He has the answer immediately, instantly. He has the answer. And these Pharisees failed to recognize that about the omniscient Savior. They were thinking that maybe the Lord would make a hasty, unwise answer, as sometimes they did. But Jesus never made a hasty, unwise answer in all the span of his life. Everything the Lord ever spoke in all his lifetime was truth. With a capital T. Truth. Not one time did he ever deal in error or supposition, or assumption. Always truth. 
the deal uh, the Lord deals with. The Pharisees failed to recognize that fact. So they sought to tempt the Lord uh, to get a word out of him that they could indict him with and accuse him with. And that's the only motive you, uh, behind the question of verse number 36. Uh, I would that the question of, of verse 36 came out of a sincere heart. I'm going to bring the question to you in a moment as if it were from a sincere heart. But we're clearly told in verse 35 that it's not from a sincere heart and that the only motive behind the question was to tempt the Savior. And so one of these uh, scribes, a lawyer, he's called, ask him a question. Now here's the question. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, if, if he had really wanted to know the answer, uh, all of us would have said, that's a good question. That's a wonderful question. But the only motive behind that question was to entrap the Savior and to indict the Savior because of his answer. But he said, Master, I'm always a little bit leery and suspicious of a man that calls the Lord Master. The title of our Savior in the New Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ means the anointed Messiah. Jesus means the Savior. Lord means that he's God before whom I bowed my knee and confessed with my tongue that he's my King, my God, my Savior. Now the proper New Testament title that you and I who are believers ought to use in reference to the Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. I would not recommend that you only call him Jesus because he's called that by his enemies in the New Testament. But no enemy of the Lord ever called him the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that's the title you and I ought to employ. But time and again in the New Testament, we find some come in and they say, Master, the rich young ruler, classic example. And he turned away and went away sorrowful when Jesus said, if thou wouldst live everlastingly, sell what you've got, come and follow me. He would not do that. And he turned and went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. I'm a little bit suspicious of a man that always says, good Lord, good master. Why don't, why don't you use the New Testament terminology? Uh, to say the least, the New Testament frowns on uh, calling Jesus master. Because only his enemies did that. And they were not calling him master because they believed it. They were calling him master because they resented him and they were trying to indict him. And so this wise scribe and lawyer said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, most of us know something about the law of God. Most of us, I guess, could quote the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. A Decalogue, Deca means ten, log means word. The ten words of, of God, the Decalogue, we sometimes call the Ten Commandments. Most of us could quote those Ten Commandments. We're quite familiar with them. Now, if I were to ask you, which is the great commandment in the law? I might get various answers. If I were to ask a Seventh-day Adventist, which is the great commandment in the law, I'll guarantee which one he'll give you. And it won't be the one that the Lord gave. You can put that down. I'll guarantee the answer that a Seventh-day Adventist would give. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that you and I now have the mark of the beast because we worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday. 
lot of bunk, unscriptural bunk as far as I'm concerned. Now, Saturday is the Sabbath day, and I've never said otherwise. But Sunday is the Lord's day, and in the New Testament, the disciples worshiped on the first day rather than on the seventh day. And the Lord came out of the grave on the first day rather than the seventh day. The number eight in Bible numerology is the number of beginning again. And Sunday is the first day of a brand new week, you see, the eighth day. I'm satisfied. My conscience is as clear to worship on Sunday as a clear conscience can be. And all this talk about the mark of the beast, we that worship on Sunday, is unscriptural and foolish so far as I can, I'm concerned. Now they'd say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the important commandment. That's the great commandment. And then somebody might come up and say, well, I don't know, but maybe the seventh commandment would be the great commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I wouldn't be at all surprised if somebody wouldn't advance that idea. Which is the great commandment in the law? Somebody would say the seventh commandment. And I, I'd have to concede that this is a commandment thrown to the wind in our day. God have mercy. Uh, the loose living, the immoral living that goes on in America today. I, it almost overwhelms me when I recognize the looseness, when I recognize the immorality, when I, when I read about and see with my eyes the phonography uh, in the newspapers and in magazines and, and in other places, when I read in the newspaper things that go on, indicating the loose moral state of the American people I'm amazed in my soul and heart and grieved in my being at this awful loose perniciousness of the days in which you and I live. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, my friend, that means exactly what it says. A man married to a wife under God is obligated to be faithful to that wife and to keep himself to her and to her only until death shall separate you. And I believe that. I'm old-fashioned enough to believe that. And I think it ought to be obeyed and observed by married people. And more than that, the same thing applies to unmarried people. It's a sad commentary, the looseness among young people in our day, unmarried people in our day. They have the pill, you see. They can take a pill and not worry about any result of their perniciousness. The pill has become a curse in more than one way. And then the abortion laws has added to the dilemma. And young people have the idea now if they get caught, they can have an abortion. And I say to you that abortion is murder. And the same Decalogue says thou shalt not kill. A doctor that will perform abortion for a hundred dollars or two hundred or whatever it is, is a murderer. And he'll meet it at the judgment. I don't care who he is. Now if a doctor performs abortion because he sincerely believes that it's for the physical well-being of his patient, that's a different thing. If the doctor's honest and sincere and he knows that an abortion must be or his patient's life is in danger, then I can understand that and certainly that would not be wrong. 
But to perform an abortion because you got caught is as wicked and as dirty and as violent and as sinful as it can be. It's murder. And I want people to know where I stand. That's one reason I said it. I think our church knows where I stand. I want Greenville to know where I stand about the situation also. Now somebody would say the seventh commandment. Well, I wonder what you would say. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now all ten of them are great, no question about that. You know, our commandment number nine says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. That means you're not to lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And I've heard so much Watergate, and somebody's bound to be lying, and I don't know who they are. I don't, I don't know that anybody knows for sure who they are. But somebody's bound to be lying. There's somebody high up in our government that's dishonest and liars. And it's a sad commentary. I can't have the confidence in the news media that I want to have. They slant the news and you don't know whether you're getting the whole facts of the case or not. I've watched it. I listen to the news a great deal in my automobile. And I've watched it. I get one report from one network and a different report from another one. And a different report from the uh, independent stations. I don't know which one to believe. And I get slanted news. Article in Reader's Digest the other day on the news uh, media. And uh, the slanted news. And that article insinuated that only the liberals have their case presented to the American people. And those on the right and in the middle of the road are never fairly presented to the American people. That's Reader's Digest. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that's not so. That's sad commentary. Somebody will say, I think the great commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness. You're not to lie. Well, the Lord didn't say that. Though I'll admit that commandment number nine is a great commandment indeed. And I'd say this to you. You tell the truth if it hurts. You tell the truth. Don't lie. Tell the truth if it hurts. And sometimes it might hurt. But to tell a lie is never the solution to any problem. Now that applies whether it's in the White House or the Poor House. Or whether it's a Catholic or a Baptist. It, it pays to tell the truth. God have mercy on a liar. A person that will say one thing to somebody else and something else to somebody else. You never know what they, where they're going to stand. God have mercy on, on people that twist up the truth and, and deceive people. By deliberate premeditated false witnessing. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, let's get back to the text. Look at verse uh, 36 again. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now here's the answer. Jesus said unto him in verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. This is it. Now, regardless of what you think about commandment number seven, or regardless of what you think about commandment number four, or regardless of what you might think about commandment number nine, 
This is the great commandment. And I dogmatically say that because my Lord said that. And I have no other choice but to agree with him. In spite of what you might think about any other commandment, here is the great commandment in the law according to Jesus. And that's the world's greatest authority. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now I want to examine that verse with you. Note it says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Now the chief end of man, the chief purpose in the life of man and the existence of man is right at this particular point. That man love the Lord thy God. Now how much am I to love God? The next clause tells us. I'm to love God in three great areas of my existence. I'm to love God with all my heart. That's the physical man. I'm to love God with all my soul. That's the soul of man. I'm to love God with all my mind. That's the spirit of man. Man like God is a trinity. Man is a body, a soul, and a spirit. And only man can love God according to the text in verse number 37. An animal could not qualify because an animal does not have a soul. Now an animal has a body. An animal has some spirit. An animal has a mind. He has a brain. It's not cultivated or developed like the brain of a human being, but he has a brain. And he has a spirit in relation to that. But the man, of course, is high above the animal kingdom in that particular aspect. But there's one aspect in the physical existence of a man that's peculiar only to man. That is the soul aspect of a man. Now I'm to love God with all my heart. That's the physical. Uh, sometimes we say, we love you with all our heart. Now, we don't literally mean uh, the organ that we call the heart that pumps our blood through our circulatory system. We don't mean that organ. Not at all. Uh, with, uh, loving somebody with all your heart is a figure of speech. And you mean by that, that you love that person, or love that work, or love that institution, with all your physical being, with everything you are, physically, you love that person. I'm to love God in the same way with all my heart. My entire physical being is to be devoted unto God. Now when I think of my physical existence, I think of 250 plus with a capital P. And then I think of 24 hours a day. I can't put any plus on that. Then I think of three meals a day. Then I think of, of some ability physically, some strength that I can use to God. Then I think of my feet that I can walk for God. Then I can think of my ears that I can hear for God. Then I think of my tongue that I can talk for God. Then I think of my, my brain that I can reason for God. My entire being, my physical being is to be devoted entirely to the Lord my God. Everything about me is to be devoted to the Lord my God. 
One time we had a testimony meeting here at Tabernacle and one of the men of our church stood up to testify and he said, and I've told this before, but it illustrates what I'm trying to say. He said, I served God full time, a layman. He said, I served God full time, but I have to work 40 hours a week, pay the expenses. I thought that hit it right on the head. I've told that so many times. And how true that is. My whole life is serving God, but I have to work 40 hours a week, pay the expenses. That's incidental. That's not the big thing. Your job's not the big thing. Your three meals a day is not the big thing. Your physical body is not the big thing. Your breath is not the big thing. Your job, your occupation, or the money that you're making, the interest that you draw, the houses that you own, the buildings that you build is not the big thing. The big thing is that I serve God full time with all my heart, my body, my body, every part of my body. And my body is connected with different things as I've suggested a moment ago. But every bit of that is to be channeled and directed toward the Almighty. That's what Jesus said. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Now you say, well, Brother Harold, if I love God with all my heart, where is there room for my family? Well, don't you worry about that, brother. You take care of the love for God, and you never have loved your family like you'll love them then. The reason some people don't love their families is because they don't love God. But you love God with all your heart, you won't have any trouble loving your wife. And you won't have any trouble loving your children. And you won't have any trouble loving your boss man. You can love a lot of people when you love God all your heart, with all your heart, you see. Because your whole body is involved. And everything that touches your body is involved in this commandment. To love God with all my heart. Then the second thing Jesus said in verse 37, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my soul. Now the soul of man is peculiar only to man. No animal has a soul. When a dog dies, his body goes back to the dirt. When any other animal dies, his body goes back to the dirt. But when a man dies, his body goes to the dirt also. But see, man is not like an animal. In that man has a soul. You say, well, where did man get that soul, my friend? He was created with that soul, you see. Somebody says... Man is incurably religious. I don't know whether you like that kind of terminology or not, but it's so. Man is incurably religious. The atheists are incurably religious. They would admit it. The communists are incurably religious. They would admit it. I, read, I heard on the radio, I read in the paper, I believe I read in the paper one day this week, that there's a religious movement going on right now behind the Iron Curtain in China. I mean in Russia. And so the young people are getting revived and getting salvation. And the communists don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to handle it. But I'd like to put them on notice that they won't be able to handle it, brother. No, sir, you, you can't handle that. And the reason you can't handle that is because God made every man incurably religious. And the fact that he's got a soul makes that a reality. Now, an animal is not incurably religious. In fact, an animal has no capacity for religion, none at all. 
An animal has no way in the world to communicate with Almighty God. He doesn't have the capability. He doesn't have the compassion. Why, if I believed that an animal had a soul, then I'd have to abstain from eating meat. You, wouldn't, you just couldn't eat the meat of a, an animal that could commune with the Almighty, you see. The fact that man has a soul makes man dignified, makes man different, makes man in God's image. An animal has no soul. It, an animal's body is made for man. A man's body is made for God. An animal's body is made to go on the table for food. But a human being's body is made to walk on streets of gold in heaven, you see. I don't hesitate one bit to sit down at a good steak. And my conscience doesn't hurt me one bit in the world. If you have any reservations or doubt about it, I can prove it to you. <laughs> Brother Melvin said, Amen. He knows I'm, ab I'm, I'm able to prove it. No, but man has a soul. That animal has no capacity to reach God or commune with God. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a strange day if you saw a cow down in the cow pasture and he had his front feet up on the fence post and his head turned toward the top, toward the skies, and he was mooing and praying and carrying on, telling God how much he thanked him for the grass and so on. No, that cow will keep his head torn toward the grass and eat the grass until somebody eats the cow. But he'll never thank God for anything. He doesn't have the capacity. He's not made for that purpose. Now, God's not angry toward a cow. God's not angry toward any animal. God knows why he, made, why he made the animals to begin with. They were made to be servants of men and companions of men and for the gladness of men and food for men. You take a dog. Uh, of course, dog is an unclean meat. But a dog can be a, a precious companion. Precious companion. Uh, I don't especially care for dogs. My wife despises dogs. But Jim and Jean have a beautiful collie dog. And uh, they keep the dog in the house at nighttime. And when I drive in at night and, and look at my house and my wife's in bed asleep, and then I look out to where Jim and Jean live with their two kitties, oh, you can say what you want to, but I find a great deal of comfort in my heart knowing that shepherd dog's in that house. That house may catch on fire, but it won't burn that dog, I'll guarantee. He'll, she'll let somebody know it. Somebody may try to break in, but she'll let somebody know it. A dog can be of a great value to a man. And God made the dog for that purpose only, to help man. A, a shepherd dog, a shepherd's got his sheep out, and, and he hasn't got enough feet to keep up with the whole flock of sheep, but he's got a dog, and he can speak, and the dog runs herd on those sheep. The dog can be a great help to man. The animal was made for that purpose. And the only reason the animal was made was to serve man. Now that's not so with a human being. A human being has a soul. And that soul is that part of you that reaches up to God. And you can commune with God through that soul. That soul is a part of man that, uh, that makes you religious. 
and you think about dying, an animal don't think about dying, or you can take a sheep and carry a sheep right straight down the line, it'll walk right to the slaughter and not even flinch. You, they don't think about dying. Uh, a human being thinks about grave and thinks about eternity, thinks about what's going to happen when he dies, thinks about what's going to happen out in the future. He does that because he's got a soul that's related to God. Now that soul of man is to be used to love God with every bit of the grace you've got to love God. A soul is not to be divided. God will not allow a man to love him with a divided spirit or a divided devotion. I'm to love God with all my soul. And then the third thing Jesus said, I'm to love God with all my mind. That's the spirit of man. The spirit, the brain, my mind is the spirit of man. Now thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon Jesus. Whose spirit is what it means. Whose spirit is upon Jesus. Whose thoughts are upon Jesus. My meditation of him shall be sweet, said the psalmist. The man that will meditate. Now you meditate with your mind, with your brain. And a man that will meditate about Jesus, God will keep him in perfect peace. Now my mind is to be stayed upon Jesus and stayed upon religion, stayed upon the cross, stayed upon my devotion to God. Oh, but somebody said, preacher, you need some, uh, you need some uh, deviation. Uh, you'll go crazy if you don't think about anything but religion. You know, I have yet to find the first person that I thought went crazy over religion. I've known people lose their minds, but they don't lose it over religion, not over the religion of Jesus. That's the best way to get your mind. You get saved, you have a sound mind. No, no, I don't buy this idea that too much thought about Jesus will cause you to become mentally unbalanced. I think you ought to keep your mind stayed on the Bible and stayed on Jesus and stayed on the church. You know what? You folk that come out here and sit and hear me preach every Sunday, during the week, you ought to be thinking about me. You ought to be thinking about Brother Aiken. You ought to be thinking about these good singers that sing and bless you. While you're working on the job, you ought to say, thank you, Lord, for Brother Aiken's good song. Thank you for Brother Don Turner's ability to sing. Thank you, Lord, for the faith trio. You ought to be saying that. Your mind ought to be on the church. You teach Sunday school class, you ought to be thinking about that Sunday school class almost all the time. You deacons ought to be thinking about this church and our missionaries and our budget and the pastor and the Sunday school, the Sunday school superintendents ought to be thinking about the Sunday school all the time. Preacher, that's monopolizing on us. Give me something for myself. My soul, when you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, there's nothing left for yourself. You become sold out for God. Is that asking too much of you? I don't think so. Jesus gave everything for me and you. I don't think we can do less than to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. At least that's what Jesus said. Keep your mind stayed upon the Lord. Think about spiritual things and spiritual values. Ponder the grace of God. Sing a song about Jesus when you work on the job. I don't think you that are saved ought to learn these popular songs. God forbid that you'd sing a rock and roll song. No. You that are saved are to sing the old rugged cross and amazing grace. Fanatic? The world will think so. But I don't think you're really a fanatic at all. I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart.
all my soul, all my mind. This is the first and the great commandment. Now, one other word, and I'll let you go. Look at verse 39. Jesus added this, and these Pharisees got the surprise of their life. It really shook them up. Much like the rich young ruler. Why the rich young ruler said, all these have I kept from my youth up, except one. Jesus knew the thing that the rich young ruler worshipped, and that was his wealth. And so Jesus said, go sell what you've got and give it to the poor. And come, faith, follow me, discipleship. That's the one thing you wouldn't do. Now he got shook, shook on that, turned away, went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now these Pharisees are shaken up now because Jesus, without their asking for it, said the second commandment. Now they only asked for the greatest. But Jesus, Jesus had a double-barrel answer. He said, the second is like to the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as I said. And brother, that's that Florida. They couldn't, they couldn't take that. They had no answer to make to that. And I want to say that to you. Not only are you to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but you're to love your neighbor. Now I could talk a long time about who is your neighbor. I think I can answer it, answer it in a nutshell. Anybody in need is your neighbor. If there's somebody that needs love, you ought to give it to them. If there's somebody that needs a dollar, you ought to give it to them. If there's somebody that needs companionship, you ought to give it to them. If there's somebody that needs food, you ought to give it to them. Now I said need. I'm not talking about these that, uh, that prey on society. I said if there's somebody that needs. I'm not talking about a loafer. I'm talking about somebody that needs. If there's somebody that needs a visit, you ought to say, I'll see you after a while, wife. I've got to make a visit and give it to them. Whatever they need. Your neighbor is the person in need of you. Whatever you might be able to supply. Under God, you're to love your, your neighbor to the degree that you'd give them anything you've got if they needed it. Now, that's a good test of discipleship. By this all the world shall know that ye are my disciple. How? If I shout, if I tithe, if I witness? No. No. But if you love one another. Isn't that in the Bible, brethren? Sure is. And we know that we pass some death and life. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I pass some death and life? Because I love the brethren. The second commandment is like the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now I'm frank with you. If there's somebody that you hate, you're not right with God. If there's somebody that you'd hurt, you're not right with God. If there's somebody you would slander and lie about, you're not right with God. I don't care whether you sing or play or preach or teach or tithe or witness. You're not right with God. If there's somebody that you'd hurt and offend, you're not right with God. Now you need to figure on that. Think about that for a while. Ponder that. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, I'm preaching to myself at this point. God help me not just to say Lord, Lord, but to be what I testify to be in reality. And God help you to do the same. Now the last verse. On these two commandments, said the Lord, hang all the law and all the prophets. In other words, the very foundation of the whole body of the law 
And that's a vast thing. The body of the law is one of the most complex things you've ever thought of. One of the greatest things you've ever thought of. A vast body of, di uh, of divine truth is the whole law. And all the law of God is founded upon these two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy, thy mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as I said. This is the great commandment. We will bow our heads in prayer. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.